Hello, cyberpunks. I'm your host, Lupus Brendan Damon. Brendan Lupus Damon Sandler. <laughs> it's typed out in front of me, and I still mess it up. Uh, dying for sexier. <laughs> yes, thank you. And welcome to our cyberpunk podcast, where hopefully we don't fail this much. Um, hopefully, but and, no, no, we fail. We fail a lot. And, and we discuss various cyberpunk media. With me today, we have Barry. Hello. Greg. Hello. Graham. Hello. Sammy. Hello. And Wes. Howdy. All right. So today we are discussing Mirror Shades, a cyberpunk anthology edited by Bruce Sterling. It was released in 1986 and featured short stories by William Gibson, Tom Maddox, uh, Pat Cardigan, Rudy Rucker, and several more uh, authors. We are going to discuss three of the stories out of this book. First up being The Gernsback Continuum by William Gibson. So uh, it begins, let's see here. Assigned to photograph 1930s period futuristic American architecture by London publishing figures Cohen and Dialta Downs. An American photographer begins to enter the worlds of his subject with increasing vividness, characterized by Downs as an American streamlined modern, a kind of alternate America, a 1980 that never happened, an architecture of broken dreams, or what Cohen calls Raygun Gothic. His encounters with the world of California gas stations, fifth-run movie houses likened to the temples of some lost sect, a utopian continuum of flying wings and air cars, multi-lane highways, giant zeppelins, and Aryan uh, habitats, or inhabitants, sorry, inhabitants, uh, lead him to hallucination as scenes of the period spill into reality. His U.S. agent, Ken, uh, attributes this to what he calls semiotic ghost, the remnants of mass culture in the collective unconscious, and advises immersion in a pulp diet of porn, eh, porn and TV. Two great things. Um... In references to the architecture of Nazi Germany, the Hitler the youth, and period sci-fi like Flash Gordon, Fritz Lang, and H.G. Wells, the modernist vistas of the Golden Age are contextualized in period political visions, as the protagonist clings to a familiar and preferred postmodern present. A lot of peas there. Uh, having completed the job, Barris Watford's hired photographer retreats to San Francisco and books a plane to New York, still trying to rid himself of the nightmare vision and the current disasters of the global news. And that is how that one ends. So next we have Red Star Winter Orbit by Bruce Sterling and William Gibson. The story takes place on the Soviet space station Cosmograd, or Cosmic City. Uh, which consists of a number of 
salutes linked together. The station has both civilian and military roles. The military portion is a base for the operation with two large particle beam weapons shooting down ICBMs. The civilian side, once a hub for space exploration, is now reduced to a maintenance role for the engineers running the station. Most of the story takes place in one of the salutes that has been set aside as, quote, the Museum of Soviet Triumph in Space. Its caretaker is cosmonaut Colonel Yuri Vasilvich Korolev, the first man on Mars, at least in this story. And as the story opens, the military role is no longer required now that the U.S. has lost superpower status and the threat of ICBMs is gone. The government decides to stop manning the station, but this would involve a loss of face as they would have or as they would be abandoning their last manned space presence. At first, they plan on blaming the station's shutdown on the civilian's crew, uh, civilian crew's black market activities, um, which include minor trafficking in American media. When he hears of the shutdown, Korolev organizes a strike, demanding the charges be dropped. He is ignored, and the station rapidly deteriorates. On the ground, a purge starts within the space establishment that removes most of the, quote, old guard. The remaining administrators decide to put the station in a decaying orbit and blame its demise on Korolev, the strike's leader. After 20 years in space, Korolev can no longer return to Earth and will, be, and will make a convenient scapegoat. Korolev instead hatches a plan to use... Gosh, my eye itches. Uh, to use the remaining Soyuz, caps or Soyuz capsules to allow the crew to defect to Japan after landing in China. His attempts to interfere with the military side of the station fail, and they prepare to fire on the defectors. One of the capsules returns and is delib or, and deliberately crashes into the weapon. Uh, the military crew is killed when their portion of the station is ripped open, and Korolev is locked in the civilian side when the doors automatically close. He's left alone in a decaying orbit. Sometime later, Korolev awakens to find one of the hatches being knocked on from the outside. Thinking he's dreaming, he comes to his senses when the hatch is open, and several Americans enter the station. Hearing it had been abandoned, they have decided to leave their squat on a solar-powered balloon and take over the station to form a new colony. The story ends with Korolev being asked to give a tour of the station for its new inhabitants. And finally, we have Mozart in Mirror Shades by Bruce Sterling and Louis Shiner. Um, the story is told in the third-person limited, uh, perspective, with a man named Rice as the protagonist. After several years of work establishing the infrastructure to obtain oil and other resources for use in real-time, he decides to leave the real-time compounds and tour Salzburg. 
he quickly encounters a teenaged Mozart, whom he befriends and provides with advice and a job. Mozart invites Bryce to a rock concert, which he's giving, and Bryce attends. After the concert is over, they begin discussing various topics, and Marie Antoinette is mentioned. After Rice tells him that she was decapitated in the original timeline by French revolutionaries, Mozart suggests that Rice go meet her, since he saved her life. Uh, at this point, Parker, the propaganda officer, arrives along with a number of former ladies who are all hoping to seduce him and to get a chance to, quote, sleep in his clean sheets and raid his uh, medicine cabinet, although Parker is short, fat, and repulsive. Um, Rice decides to meet Marie Antoinette. The narration jumps forward a week and resumes with them in bed together in Versailles uh, after a week of obsessive carnality. When she asks him about a leather bikini in an issue of Vogue, he pats her on the rear and tells her that she is with him now and can get what she wants. Rice reveals that he was supposed to have been back to work days ago. When Toinette asks uh, whether he loves her, Rice answers, Baby, I love the very idea of you. At this point, Mozart, who has mysteriously obtained a communications job, calls Rice. He explains that there is serious trouble with the natives or with native uprisings, and that uh, Rice is needed back. Rice and Marie begin to drive back towards Salzburg, and they have an argument because Rice is unable to obtain a green card for her. As a result, she lures him into a trap, and several Freemasons, who are coordinating much of the resistance, capture him and take him hostage. After Rice is held captive for several hours in an isolated house, uh, I'll probably mess this up, but it's, uh, I'm going to say Jeb, Jeb Noyan, the former Mongol warrior and member of the uh, Grey Card Army. A Grey Card allows one to move between different branches of alternate history, but not into real time. He arrives. Um, he uses modern weapons to quickly kill the Masons and rescue Rice. He conveys Rice back to the company's compound where a battle is taking place between Grey Card soldiers and local troops. The casualty ratio strongly favors the company soldiers, but they are severely outnumbered and have received orders to abandon the timeline. At this point, Marie Antoinette uh, arrives on the scene shouting angrily at Mozart, who had promised that if she led Rice into the trap, he would obtain a green card for her. Jeb punches her in the face and knocks her down. From this, Jeb realizes that Mozart had incited the Masons and given them information. Uh, Mo Jeb then threatens to kill Mozart. Uh... Parker, the propaganda officer, casually kills Jeb, explaining that he could not risk anything happening to Mozart, whose music has reached number five on the Billboard charts. Rice becomes angry and shouts at Mozart that he cannot use people like that, 
and that real time will punish him when they find out what he did. Parker considers this amusing, saying, quote, We're on top of the pops here, not some penny anti refinery. Rice, stunned, grabs Toinette and follows Parker and Mozart through the time portal, abandoning this timeline. So, the question arises. Is it cyberpunk? Um, I'm gonna say the second one or the third one, not at all. The second one could be, and the first one definitely is. Mm. Um, which thus gives the entire book a writing of partially cyberpunk. <laughs> Or cyberpunk adjacent. Uh, cyberpunk adjacent is more when there are themes, but there's not enough actual cyberpunk to determine whether or to call it cyberpunk. Um, so I'm going to go down the list here and get everyone's thoughts. Starting with, uh, we're going to start with Greg here. I would have to say I agree with you. The One of the three had parallels to be cyberpunk. The other two didn't sound like they had anything to contribute to it. All right. Twin? Uh, um, I'm going to go ahead and say it isn't fully cyberpunk. There are uh, stories in it that it are, but like you mentioned in the three stories, there was one that completely wasn't one that uh, was at least cyberpunk adjacent, and then one that was uh, not, also not really cyberpunk. Uh, Barry. Um, so this is the first time I heard of this uh, I, I have zero familiarity with it So uh, I'm just going to say pass Okay then uh, Wes uh, I would have to agree with the general consensus Alright And Sammy Yeah it's a mixed bag of marbles <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's cool. That's, that's all I've got to comment. So, did it really add anything to Cyberpunk? I'll be honest, I couldn't figure that out. Because I'm not sure that book coined the term Mirror Shades. I don't think it did either. I think Pondsmith uh, did himself, actually. If if not, it came from something far before that. Uh, wait, what year is it published? Uh, eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah, I guarantee there were the mirror 70s. shades. Yeah. <laughs> Originally, shades. it referred to reflective sunglasses. Yeah, yeah still, what it refers to. <laughs> yeah. Polarized reflective sunglasses. Uh, they're not always polarized, but they usually are. Well, more modern pairs are typically polarized. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm going to say it really didn't add anything other than a few short stories that probably wouldn't have gotten much attention otherwise. Uh, anyone else feel differently? No. Nah. Not really. Sammy? Alright then. <laughs> um... I'd say overall, it was a nice uh, idea to collect a bunch of short stories that are cyberpunk theme. I think they missed the mark. I feel like they could have added a lot more cyberpunk to the book itself, and it really have gone above and beyond. But I'm happy that they did include two stories by William Gibson. Mm. And um, with that, I guess we can wrap up for the night. I didn't think it'd be this Jordan of an episode, but um, kind of self-explanatory why it is. Yeah. So... Uh, Barry, where can we find you? Uh, if you want to hear more from me, you can find me at KHZHAK on YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter. Uh, my YouTube and Twitch, I don't make much content myself, but if you look at the related channels and who I'm hosting, there's stuff I'm involved with there. And the stuff I like and retweet on Twitter is generally safe for work, although my pins tweet is not. Who's All right. Next? Uh, Greg, where can we find you? On my uh, YouTube channels, which are listed on this site, and I am working on a new project, although I don't know when it will currently launch. All right. Um, Wes, anything to plug? I'm guessing the silence is a no. No, I don't have anything to plug. All right. Okay. Um, so for this specific podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch by searching Gen Cyberpunk Pod, and our YouTube channel is Generation Cyberpunk. Uh, if you want to hear more from our group, please check out the Thanks for Nothing podcast on the FML Productions YouTube channel. And we you, also do. You can also hear this first on YouTube, but it will be posted in audio form later. Thank you. We also do various D and D campaigns on that channel, and are in the process of making an anime. Uh, if you want to donate, we do have a co- coffee link in the description of our Thanks for Nothing podcast. Donations are welcome, but by no means necessary. Um. And next week, we're going to cover Snow Crash. Ooh. Uh, until then, we will see you later, Cyberpunks. <laughs>